As we turn our hearts now to the Word of God, you can turn, if you'd like, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We're reading our way through the Gospel of Mark, if you'd like to read with me. My Bible translation is the ESV, or English Standard Version, so if you're reading out of the Pew Bible, it will read slightly differently, uh, but it's essentially the same. Um, And before we read, would you please... Uh, Pray with me. Our God, as we come now to your word, help us to lean into this. That we know that without your word to us, we are without hope. So Lord, would you help us to see and to understand? Would you bring light to our hearts and minds? Would you awaken us to the things that are true about you, so that we might believe and follow you. In all of these things, we trust you and we depend upon your help by your spirit. Would you guide us when we pray these things in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're in Mark chapter 6. We'll uh, read a handful of verses here, starting in verse 30. So this is Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they'd found out, he said, They said, five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and and he said a blessing and he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And when they all ate, they were satisfied And they took up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. (laughs) Right? Uh, And those uh, who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This is God's word and the voice of a a baby. So we know now uh, that we're, we're reading through the Gospel of Mark. So we've been following the life of Jesus according to Mark. And in these first eight chapters, Mark is primarily establishing the identity of Jesus. Basically, we're asking the question, who is this man, 
Jesus. And if you were here with us last week, you'll remember that in, this, in the previous section, Jesus had sent out his 12 apostles two by two, and he sent them with his authority, and they were calling the people in all the surrounding areas as they went to them to repent. And we talked about how repentance then is both turning from something and turning to something. It's all right, buddy. <laughs> Repentance is turning from something and turning to something, even turning from our respectable sins. So now, the apostles have done all of this. We don't know how long they were gone, but they were gone some period of time. And here in this text, as we pick it up in verse 30, the apostles returned. And Jesus' first response to them is to say, rest which we won't focus on that much, but just as an aside, what a great leader that is, right? Have you ever had a boss that says, here's, here's your task, and when you finish that, here's another, and another, and another, and another, and another, and it just goes on and on and on and on without even a break or a breath. And Jesus has sent them out with this very big task, and as, he come, as they come back, his first response is to tell them to rest because Jesus is a good shepherd so now then the rest then gets interrupted with what many call the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 which the description of that feeding of the 5,000 is a misnomer it's not quite right in describing it that way uh, we know that because verse 44 says there were 5,000 men Right? And the word here is not just a description of people. 5,000 males, it says. Matthew, in his account of this, says there were 5,000 men plus women and kids. He just goes ahead and spells that out for us. So I don't know how many women and kids there were, probably more uh, men. So let's just let's give it a fair number. The feeding of the 10,000, let's say. So to wrap our minds around just how much that is, if you're a basketball fan, like I am, uh, we came from KU, you have to be. Allen Fieldhouse, which is their basketball arena, holds 16,000 people. And for comparison, I know uh, we're in Missouri now, so the Mizzou Fieldhouse holds 15,000, 1,000 less. I'm not gonna pick on that, that's just the case, okay? So that's just for, for comparison's sake. When you're watching a college basketball game on TV, we're not seeing everybody. It doesn't give you a panorama view. But when you look out at how many faces there are in the audience, that's a, that's a good measure of what we're looking at here. So that's a high bar, um, and we know that the way that they're able to hear Jesus, if you were here with us several weeks ago, they're at the Sea of Galilee area, which geographically is kind of scooped up because of the mountains, so it had this sort of natural amphitheater effect. You could sit and kind of see, and because of the way it, the, it echoes in that region, you can, you can even YouTube this if you're really curious about it. Someone can stand and speak in a normal voice, and you can hear it. So that's how Jesus is able to interact with these 10,000 people now. And we know um, that years later, Mark wrote about this event. Sometime down the road, he puts pen to paper to describe the life of Jesus. And many who would have read the Gospel of Mark would have been there. There are people then who are reading in the first century this Gospel of Mark, and they were part of that 10,000 people. And they would go, ah, oh, yes. I remember that. 
Wasn't that crazy? It reminds me of, uh, so Laura and I lately have been watching uh, one of those uh, O.J. Simpson documentaries. I feel like there's tons of those out now. Um, but it was like 10 hours long, the documentary was. But um, it reminded me of, I, I go, oh yes, I, I mean it was more than 10 years ago that the O.J. Simpson trial happened. But as I'm watching this sort of play out, I go, oh yeah, I remember the glove, I remember her hairdo, I remember, I remember, I remember. And I was in elementary school, so Selby, are you, Selby's hiding. Or Burton, somebody, Selby, how old are you? Not eight or nine, somewhere in there, nine. And Alex, how old are you? Seven. Or seven and a half, okay. So we've got seven and a half and eight or nine. I was probably somewhere around these guys' age, which was a, you know, a little bit ago. But I can watch that and go, ah, yes. I remember that. That is how that went. And so as Mark's gospel is circulating and these many people go, ah, yes, that is how that goes. That helps us to trust in the credibility of the scripture. <laughs> it helps us to trust in the credibility of the scripture to really go, ah, yes, this is really true. This really happened. It also helps us that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record this account. The only other miracle that's recorded by all four Gospels is the really big one, the resurrection of Jesus. It's sort of the climax at the end of all the Gospels. It's the, the, the punctuation mark at the end where Jesus dies to take on the sin of all of his people and absorb the wrath of God. And then he's raised in victory. That miracle of being raised from the dead is recorded by all four Gospels. This is the only other miracle that all four Gospels record. Uh, we know that as they're rec reporting things, so Jesus had a three-year-long ministry, which means that you can't record everything that happened. So the gospel writers are not a court reporter, a lot of court analogies, I know, but if you've ever seen uh, situations like this where there's the court reporter and they're sitting off to the side and their fingers are dancing, kind of like uh, spiders, and then they say, oh, would you read back the record? And they record every single word that's spoken. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's not what the gospel writers are doing. If they did that, can you imagine three years worth of every single word that was spoken by Jesus? The Bible's already big enough, right? So, Mark and Matthew and Luke and John, as they're writing their Gospels, are choosing for us what to include in order to tell us something. Mark is including this particularly to tell us something. We know that he can't just say anything. He can't make up details. There are people that are going to read what he says, and they go, no, that's not how that went. He can't go, and then Jesus fed them bread riding in on a unicorn. We don't get to do that, right? Which, by the way, if you hear about the lost gospels or the hidden gospels that some TV shows will talk about, these extra gospels, if you ever read them, there's stuff like people riding in on unicorns. But this is different than that. This is true. This happened. And Mark is highlighting particular things then to help us. And we don't want to miss what Mark tells us. So 
We're going to ask the question as we read through parts of this, what does Mark really want to tell us here about Jesus? There's a section in Mark's account of this feeding of the 5,000 that is unique, at least in the account of Mark, uh, for, for this miracle. It's verse 34, and it's where we'll be spending most of our time. So look again, if you're reading with me at it, I'll read it once more. When he, that's Jesus there, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So this is our jogger verse for the month. In our bulletin insert, I I pick a verse to sort of highlight for us, and you can do with that what you will. I usually rip it out, and I put it on a magnet on our fridge, so this verse has been sitting on our refrigerator, staring me in the face every day this month. And I'll tell you, there's something about this verse that has really haunted me, that I can't quite wrap my mind around. When it says that he went ashore and saw a great crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, I wonder, what did that look like? It wasn't just any crowd he's looking at. Jesus is looking out at this horde of people. And they look to him like sheep without a shepherd. Was it something about their eyes that made him think that or feel that? Something in their face? Something in the way that they moved? What was it that showed their longing? What was it that showed that they were missing something? That they're looking for something as they come to Jesus? And I don't know the answer to that. But there's at least some insight in what Jesus does to respond to these people who were like sheep without a shepherd. You can see the thing that he does. They were like sheep without a shepherd in the rest of the verses. And then he began to teach them. So he looks out on this horde of people who are coming lost to him. And he doesn't heal them, at least not this time. He doesn't give them hugs and counsel and support, at least not this time. And he doesn't do a miracle, at least not yet. His first response to these sheep without a shepherd is to teach them because the thing that they are missing is guidance. These sheep are lost. So I saw in the news this week... um, Thank you, Google. You know how it has that little icon that's there? It's, a, you know, when you type in things from the home page and they change it every day. This week, you know, they're always kind of fun. One was a little cartoon of the Earth and there was a telescope. Did anyone else see this? So I heard on the news that uh, we've discovered seven exoplanets, which I did not even know was a thing. Uh, but somehow a star, this is beyond me, so, you know, I'm trying to just report what I heard. There's a star somewhere that they've discovered planets are orbiting around. Just like our star, the sun, has all the planets orbiting around in this. And they're really excited about this because three of them might have water on it and there's possibility that there might be um, some sort of life somewhere else in the universe and there's been all this buzz about that lately. And a part of me just looks at that and goes, wow, 
We can do that? You know, my telescope when I was a kid, it was about this tall, right? And I could maybe see into the neighbor's yard if I squinted. Uh, but somehow we have telescopes and science and ability to look into other stars and find their planets. How do we do that, right? And so we've, we've advanced in astronomy, we've advanced in so many areas of our lives and technology, we're more mobile as a people than we've ever been. There's more sharing of information through the internet than there has ever been in human history. And all of these things can be very wonderful, but for all of this I have to wonder, are we any better off than these people? Or are we still somehow like sheep without a shepherd? Because even with all the positive things that happen, we still look out at the prevalence of addictions and anorexia and obesity, the, the prevalence of violence and poverty and racism. We have more leisure as a people than we've ever had in human history, and yet we use that leisure to consume media and television. And we find ourselves chasing careers and advancement until finally we chase retirement, and then when we get the things that we're looking for, we're unhappy. Are we any better off than these people. Our young people and our old people are aching, looking for mentors and teachers, people who will disciple them. We are sheep without a shepherd. And this isn't just a problem in our day or Jesus' day. This has long been a problem in human history. It was a problem even for Israel um, in uh, the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel writes about this very thing that Israel was, sorry for the sound here, Israel was like a people without a shepherd in the sense that their shepherds, the people who were supposed to lead Israel, did not do as they were supposed to do. Listen to what happened, this is in Ezekiel uh, 34. Thus says the Lord God, shepherds of Israel, you've been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? But you eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you don't feed the sheep. The weak ones you haven't strengthened, the sick you haven't healed, the injured you haven't bound up, the strayed you haven't brought them back, the lost you haven't sought, and with force and harshness you've ruled them. They were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they all became food for the wild beasts. Basically, he's saying these people who were to lead Israel became devourers of the sheep. They ate them alive. And so it was as if they were just shepherdless. And so the, the sheep then became food for the wild beasts. This is not good. So what will the Lord 
do in response to this if we read on? I can't read all of this, and it's, it's wonderful. It's a rich text. If you have time at home, read the rest of Ezekiel 34, but here's just a part. Here's the response of God. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, when he's among the sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day without clouds and thick darkness. I myself, I will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. Can you hear in this the heart of God? And this heart of God that somehow we think the Old Testament God, God the Father, is kind of the harsh one. And yet here he is saying, I will tenderly care for my sheep. We know that our Westminster Confession, which is a very old document, which, by the way, is written by a handful of men who themselves were good shepherds, good teachers for us, described the Lord as being a God who's without parts or passions is the line. God is without parts or passions, meaning that he's without parts. You can't divide him up. It's not, you can't just go, Here, here's part of his personality, that he's all one, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the without passions does not mean that Jesus doesn't, or God, Jesus, Father, Son, and Spirit, the whole God, the Trinity, does not have emotions. It means that he does not have emotions in the same way that we do. So his emotions are not tainted by sin or affected by poisonous selfishness. But God does have emotion. We know that because what we're seeing here in God the Father is exactly what we see from Jesus in Mark. I'll turn back to the section of Mark. You can see again in verse 34, when Jesus went, as went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. Literally, that word means he felt it in his guts. And this isn't just pity or sympathy. Oh, poor so-and-so, right? Have you ever shared something that was really hard for you? Or there's something you're really aching and the other person that you shared it with doesn't know how to deal with it and they give you that face like, oh, sweetheart, oh, honey, right? You know how belittling that feels? That's not this. We do that because we feel uncomfortable with brokenness, but Jesus does not feel uncomfortable with brokenness. He sees their shepherdlessness, and he feels it in his guts in a way that wells up inside of him and produces an action, which here is teaching them. We don't know exactly how long he taught them, um, but it does say that they stayed all day. He must have been a much better teacher than I am because no one fell, well, maybe people fell asleep. I don't know. Uh, but they stayed and they continued to want to hear what Jesus was saying about the truth of God. And it's, they stayed long enough that verse 35 says it was late. So I don't know exactly when late was, but late. And it gets to the point where the disciples, the 12 apostles, start to be concerned about food, which makes sense, right? There's no Jimmy John's, can't call in a pizza, 
and they're out in this area where there's no town that's like right next door, and we've got 5,000 men, probably 10,000 or more people, and somehow they've got to eat. And so Jesus calls in the five loaves and two fish, you know the rest of the story, and feeds the the 10,000. Now, what's interesting about this is we don't know exactly how this happens. It's funny that if you ever watch those uh, the movies, the Jesus film, those sorts of things where they're kind of telling the story of Jesus and you watch the various accounts of this, that they all do this piece differently. So some of them have Jesus hold up the basket with the five loaves and two fish and he prays and then fish and bread just starts billowing out of it like a fountain, you know? Maybe it, maybe it was that way. I don't know. We don't know exactly how it multiplied. It, it could have been that he kind of split up the bit into, into baskets and then those multiplied. It could have been that it multiplied as we went or kind of all at once. My inclination is that somehow what they had was divided amongst the disciples and as they handed it out, just it never disappeared. It's not that it billowed up all at once. But it was very much like the, the widow with the oil in Second Kings chapter 4 that no matter how much she poured out, there was still more oil in there. I gave you a fish, and well, there's another fish in here, and, and here's a fish for you, and well, there's another fish in here, and Rebecca, would you like fish? I had more fish. I don't know. There's still more fish. So we don't know exactly how that happened. That's my guess. I don't really know. What Mark does tell us, some things that we do know, is that there was plenty, he says. That in verse 42, it says they all ate and were satisfied, which basically means there wasn't just that polite experience that you have when you visit someone's house and you take a small helping of something just because you don't want to take too much, or there's that little bit left over at the end and you don't want to be the awkward one that finishes off the plate. That whatever it was, even if they took a little at the beginning, they continued to take because there was plenty and they ate and ate and ate and ate and ate until they were full. There was plenty for them to the point where in verse 43 it says that there were 12 baskets left over. You could put it in your Tupperware and stick it in your fridge. So that's one thing that we do know, that there was plenty. There's one other thing that we do know about this process, this multiplying of the fish, is the way that it was distributed. So if you look in verse 37... Uh, the disciples have just said, hey, these people need something to eat. Here's Jesus' first response to them. But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. Doesn't that sound weird to you? Listen, Jesus, we know we've been with you a long time. You calmed the sea. You've done all these amazing, miraculous things. These people are hungry. We need to feed them somehow. And Jesus goes, you feed them. And their first response is, we don't have enough money for that. I mean, maybe we can go travel, and we can't get Jimmy John's to come deliver. We can go to the nearest Jimmy John's, but this would require a year's worth of wages to feed everybody. And that's when Jesus then gathers the five loaves and the two fish, and you'll notice then in verse 41, here's how he distributes it. Um, taking the five loaves and two fish, he blesses it, he breaks it, and then here's the line. And then he gave it to the disciples to give to the people. 
Do you hear that? So Jesus has called the apostles. I want you to feed them. And then, when he does the miracle of producing enough food to go around, he has the disciples hand it out. And I think that this is not just a practical thing, that Jesus, it would have taken a long time for Jesus by himself to hand it out, right? So it's not just, oh, this will be a little more practical. He hands it, not just to anyone, but to the apostles. What's happening here is that Jesus, the good shepherd, is establishing other shepherds. I'll say that again. Jesus, the good shepherd here, is beginning to establish other shepherds to care for the people. You know that when Mark writes this gospel, the primary source that he's using in in accounting for all these things is he spent a lot of time with Peter. So Peter's the one that's sort of providing the the bulk of the information for what Mark writes down. And if you'll remember, at the end of John's gospel, Jesus has died, and he's resurrected now, and he appears to various people at various times. And at one point, he appears to the apostles, and he has an interaction with Peter. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter goes, duh. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. You remember Jesus' response? Then feed my lambs. And again, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Peter, tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. What's happening here is that Jesus is saying, I have bought these people by my blood. I have sacrificed myself for their sake. I've taken their sin upon me and taken upon the wrath of God upon myself and out of compassion for these people, when I leave to go back to the Father, I will not leave them without a shepherd. I will give you my spirit, he says earlier in John. I will give you another helper that will guide you in this directly from God. But the way that that is played out is I'm going to set up other shepherds to teach you, to guide you, so that you will not be sheep without a shepherd anymore. So then out of this, this is to play, uh, to play itself out in the life of the church. Particularly, we call these shepherds elders in the church. And that they're to live by the strength of the chief shepherd, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Peter then talks about in 1 Peter chapter 5. I want you to listen then for how these shepherds are to, uh, to shepherd. This is from 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you, or listen, I'm really going to tell you elders something. I exhort you, elders among you, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Jesus, as well as a partaker of the glory that's to be revealed. Here's now his command. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Do not shepherd for shameful gain, but shepherd eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to those in the flock. 
And when the chief shepherd appears, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let me sum those things up again, that he's telling these under-shepherds, these other elders that Peter's commanding, now this is how we're to live. He says, elders, I want you to exercise oversight willingly, eagerly, and being an example to your people. Which, by the way, can you imagine what a delight it would be to live under shepherding like that? Imagine in your workplace to have a boss like this that cares not only about the work, but about you. And how are you doing? And caring for you. Imagine having shepherding like this at home with parents who are really following the example of Jesus here, not doing it just because it's their duty, but out of genuine care and love for their children and their families. And also imagine this as if it really played out in the life of the church, that elders led out of compassion, willingly, eagerly being examples to the people so that we would not be left shepherdless So now, listen to the rest of what Peter says. So that's the direction to the elders, to the shepherds. Here's now his turn to the rest of the people. He says in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, I know younger is a relative term, but you who are younger, be subject to the elders. That word be subject literally means put yourself under the elders. Or willingly submit yourself to them. Now, this is not a flat example. If they're doing something immoral, you got to say something about that. Don't follow that. But apart from those things, he's calling the flock, or here the church of God, to be subject to their leadership. That means even if you think they're wrong, even if your opinion is different than theirs to follow them willingly as the flock of God. And then lastly, he has a command to everybody. uh, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. So that means the flock is not only being subject to the elders, but serving one another. And even the elders are humble before the people. They're the kind of shepherd that would kneel to wash the people's feet I hope that there's some measure, at least, of that in me toward you. I at least want to be that kind of shepherd for you. Um, Now, in all of this, some will say, I don't really need the church to do this. I don't really need the church. I can pray on my own. I do pray on my own. I have my own space for it even. Or I listen to sermons that are much better than that guy that I see on Sunday mornings. I can listen to them online. Or I give money to various missions so I can support the church that way. And I can love God on my own. Some say that. But I would push you and say, if you love God then why do you ignore God's call to gather to worship him with his people? If you love God, why do you wander off instead of joining his flock? 
Jesus didn't just establish the church for fun or because it was a nicety. He established the church because he loved her. Now, uh, in my experience, those who say this sort of thing, that I don't really need the church to live out my faith, one of two things happens to a person like that. Either that person is gently drawn back into the fold of the sheep by the Spirit of God, that like the 99 who were there and he, there was one that was missing, that he goes out looking for them by his Spirit and by his people and brings them back in, and we want that. Or a person that says, I can kind of do this on my own without the church. If they're not drawn back by the Spirit into the fold of God, they drift away slowly until they are sheep without a shepherd and they don't even see it. Hmm. Now, I want to be honest here and not without compassion. Part of the reason why people say things like, I don't need the church or I can do this on, on, our, on my own is because they've been hurt by the church. There have been some bad shepherds somewhere along the way, either shepherds who were absent or shepherds who were present and were not good shepherds. Maybe that's happened to you. Maybe you've not had a good shepherd at home that your parents gave you a roof over your head and food on the table, but they did not teach you true things about God. Or maybe that's happened to you at work, that you have a slave master as a boss. Or maybe you see the government that way, that over the years, no matter who it is and what party that we put in, that time after time, at points, it seems like, do these people really want the good of the people, or are they eating the fat sheep? And worst of all, sometimes this happens in the church, and we have to own that, that mistakes are made not only amongst each other, but sometimes we've been wounded by our own shepherds. And if that has happened to you, I am so very sorry. Sorry, that hit a soft spot in me. If you've been de devoured by shepherds, abandoned by shepherds, I'm so very sorry. Now, that is a real and significant problem. But let's be real about this now. The answer to this problem of having sheep without shepherds is not to become a spiritual hitchhiker. These shepherds were bad, so I will venture off on my own. That does not fix the problem of being without a shepherd. You are still without a shepherd. So if the answer is not to become a spiritual hitchhiker, then what do we do? And I hope it's not too simplistic to just say that we're to return to Jesus, the good shepherd who binds up our wounds. Know that if this is you that's wandering like a sheep without a shepherd, that you're not alone. There were 10,000 people in this story that came at Jesus like sheep without a shepherd, and they were not without hope. 
You'll notice that it talks about in verse 33, when they're coming at him, there's one little word that gets in me. Now, many saw them going and they recognized them. Here's the response of the people. They see the disciples who've come with the authority of Jesus and they see this man, Jesus, who's now come in off of this boat and the people look at all of this and the, ver the word in verse 33 is, and then they ran to him on foot. You hear that? They ran to him somehow in their guts. They knew they were shepherdless. They needed some sort of guidance. And so they ran to Jesus. They did not waste another second. They don't want to be without him another moment. And Jesus spent all afternoon and all evening teaching them. And he sat them down on the green grass. And he gave them shepherds who would guide them when he was gone, and he fed them. And for just a moment then, they got to taste what David talks about in Psalm 23. You probably know it. They got to experience that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. This is our God. This is our good shepherd. We now are his flock. Let's follow him. Would you pray with me? Our great God, we know that on one hand you are seated high above the heavens, that in the same breath, though, you are a shepherd to us, tender and kind and compassionate, that you feel for us in your guts. Thank you. You know our needs, that you care for us better than we could ever care for ourselves. Would you help those among us who are leaders, who are shepherds in church and work and family, would you help us to follow you in shepherding those among us? And, and for all of us then who are, shep who are being shepherded by you, would you help us to hear your voice and to follow you? We give you all of our thanks and all of our praise and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.